Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Available at kraken.com or via the mobile app, which is available on the Apple and Android app stores. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Tom, how you doing? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. Um, Ghislaine Maxwell's been arrested. Shit. Yeah. Where? Do you know where? Don't know. I've just... Give me one second. It literally just... For the past couple of months, I've been researching Ghislaine Maxwell, who was the lover and partner of paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein for the best part of two decades. Yeah, so here we go. Breaking Jeffrey Epstein's madame, Ghislaine Maxwell has been arrested by the FBI. Good morning. Today we announce charges against Ghislaine Maxwell for helping Jeffrey Epstein sexually exploit and abuse multiple minor girls from the period of 1994 through 1997. Maxwell has been taken into custody early this morning in New Hampshire and will be presented this afternoon before a magistrate judge in the District of New Hampshire. She's been accused of procuring and trafficking underage girls for Epstein's sexual gratification. And after Epstein's arrest and subsequent death in jail last year, she went missing. Since then, she's remained in custody, deemed a flight risk, until she appears in court in the summer of 2021. When I started this project, I first wanted to get to the bottom of many of the conspiracy theories about Epstein, his untimely death in jail, and the people in the shadows who may have wanted him to remain permanently silenced. The strange thing about this story was that I was finding that no one would talk to me, whether that was journalists and authors, or eyewitnesses and key players in the story. People were simply ignoring my messages. I reached out to everyone mentioned in this series, some are dead, most ignored me, and a few had the courtesy to tell me they're not speaking. But the more I researched, the more I found, and rather than debunking these theories, I found myself finding shreds of evidence that made me think that perhaps these weren't just conspiracies, as well as discovering more about Ghislaine Maxwell's own murky family history. In my 20 years as a journalist, I've been down a few rabbit holes, but... This one was a warrant that's taken me back to some of the biggest political scandals of the last 50 years. It's led me to the doors of some of the world's most influential and notorious characters and to the gates of nearly every major intelligence organisation in the world. I'm Tom Pattinson, and this is the story of Ghislaine Maxwell for Defiance. Disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein is dead. Epstein took his own life while he was behind bars here in New York City facing charges of sex trafficking. Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his cell on the morning of the 10th of August 2019. Two federal guards, Tova Noel and Michael Thomas, were required to check on him every 30 minutes. Instead, between the hours of 10.30pm and 6.30am, they napped and browsed the internet for furniture and sports news. And when they went to give him breakfast in the morning, they found Epstein hanging in his cell. 
Prison officials uh, found Jeffrey Epstein in his cell. Apparently, he had uh, hanged himself. Lawyers defending the two guards have asked, why was a man on suicide watch in a cell alone without a cellmate? Why were there no senior supervisors on duty to monitor the prisoner and the guards? And how did such a high-profile prisoner manage to kill himself in one of the most secure prisons? Questions quickly arose about the cause of his death. Was he murdered, assassinated by someone who didn't want his sordid secrets becoming public? And the meme Epstein didn't kill himself became firmly embedded within the public narrative. Well, this Epstein case is probably the most blatant example of a public murder of, of a crucial witness I've ever seen in my entire life or anybody's ever seen. Epstein, a convicted sex trafficker, was thought to have a long list of names of those who had participated in sex acts with minors. Many of those names are thought to be hugely influential characters, lawyers, film stars, academics, and politicians. If a plea bargain was on the table, Epstein could broker a deal to reveal all in exchange for a shorter sentence, and it could be very embarrassing for those people. The rumours of an assassination were boosted after a forensic pathologist hired by Epstein's family claimed that the evidence pointed to homicide. Epstein apparently had several broken neck bones, including the hyoid bone. Uh, It can be broken by suicide, but it's more commonly associated with murder by strangulation. Even the Attorney General, William Barr, said that it could have been murder. How could someone who'd been on suicide watch kill himself in one of the most secure jails in America, he said. But eventually, even he changed his opinion, stating that the evidence pointed to suicide, suggesting it was merely a perfect storm of screw-ups that led to his death. A convenient death, for sure. No longer would a trial potentially put princes, presidents and other frequent guests at Epstein's notorious private island in front of a judge. With Epstein dead, all eyes were now on his partner in these crimes, his one-time girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell. She's accused of procuring teenage girls for Epstein and his friends to traffic and have sex with. She's accused of taking part in orgies with Epstein and sexual encounters with the trafficked underage girls. And she's been witness to decades of the actions of Epstein and his friends. But to tell the story of Ghislaine Maxwell, we need to go back 30 years when another major financier died in suspicious circumstances just before he too was to be held to account for his crimes. That man is Robert Maxwell, Ghislaine's father. The millionaire newspaper publisher Robert Maxwell is dead. He disappeared overboard from his private yacht early this morning while cruising off the Canary Islands. In 1989, tanks were rolling across Tiananmen Square in China, and the walls were coming down in Germany. In 1990, troops were fighting in the Gulf and the Soviet Union was crumbling. Whilst communism was falling in Europe, in 1991 in the UK, it was the death of Robert Maxwell that was to be the biggest story of the year. The flamboyant media tycoon was one of the wealthiest men in the world, but just as a major investigation was starting into why hundreds of millions of pounds was missing from his company's pension pot, his naked and bloated body was found floating in the sea. He'd fallen off his boat, the Lady Ghislaine, named after his ninth and favourite child. Robert Maxwell had been a regular on the news throughout the 80s, partying with royalty, buying football clubs and getting snapped with world leaders on both sides of the Iron Curtain. From Gorbachev to Thatcher, 
Maxwell had friends across the political spectrum. As well as being a member of parliament, he was the biggest media tycoon in the country. He owned the Mirror Group, the British Printing Corporation, Macmillan Publishers, Pergamon Press and the New York Daily News, among literally hundreds of other companies. A flamboyant character, his lavish spending, global influence, infamous temper and the love of women made great stories in both the papers he owned and the ones he didn't. But for all the headlines he made in life, it was Maxwell's death in November 1991 that was to become his legacy. As his empire collapsed, it was left to his children to pick up the pieces. I felt that I needed to tell the story of Robert Maxwell because, with Ghislaine in the spotlight, not many people are as familiar with the background to her tycoon father. My plan was to tell her story through the two main men in her life, and as I researched both parts, I noticed that there were similarities between Maxwell and Epstein, but the only thing linking them was Ghislaine, daughter to one, lover to the other. And what I've tried to figure out is whether Ghislaine is a victim of these powerful men, or whether she's a willing accomplice. Born on Christmas Day in 1961, Ghislaine was Robert Maxwell's ninth child. Her older brother Michael, aged 15, was injured in a car crash and remained in a coma until his death in 1967, when he was just 21 years old. Ghislaine's long-suffering mother, Elizabeth, said that the traumatic impact of Michael's death led to Ghislaine becoming anorexic while she was still a toddler. Robert and Elizabeth suffered another tragedy when their three-year-old daughter, Karine, died of leukemia before Ghislaine was born. The surviving seven Maxwell children lived in the sprawling family estate of Headington Hall in Oxfordshire, the location of some lavish parties attended by politicians, princesses and the world's richest and most influential. It was a lavish but brutal upbringing. Ghislaine's older brothers, Ian and Kevin, were bullied and beaten by their father. Relatives, colleagues and family's friends have all said that Robert privately beat and publicly admonished the boys. Even Ghislaine's mother, Elizabeth, wrote that her husband was a bully. But while it may have been a childhood of abuse for the boys, it was one of privilege and glamour for Ghislaine, by far Robert Maxwell's favourite child. She would accompany him to the most glamorous of balls, to parties thrown by stars such as Elton John and to the royal boxes of international sporting events always photographed, clinging on to Daddy's arm. Maxwell decided that only Ghislaine and Kevin would receive any of his inheritance. I adore them, and they're the only ones who deserve it, he said. Ghislaine attended Marlborough College, Britain's most exclusive boarding school, where Kate Middleton, the future wife of Prince William, would go on to study. She then attended university at Balliol College, Oxford, where she was friends with Love Actually actor Hugh Grant and was there at the same time as the teenage Boris Johnson was holding raucous parties as part of the notorious Bullingdon Club. After university, she joined her father's media empire, where she spent time in New York as a trusted confidant across the Atlantic to charm and woo potential new business partners. She would fly on Concord to New York to personally hand-deliver documents on instruction from her father and accompany him on trips to America to visit one of his many mistresses. Ghislaine was among the children of the elite. These children's parents ran the world, and not only did she know how to succeed in society, but she was known as being one of the best hostesses on the circuit. Ghislaine was perfectly suited to charm her way through this magical world of multi-millionaires, politicians and royalty, 
and it was only natural that she was spending time with royals of her own age. Prince Andrew, the Queen's second son, became a firm friend, a friend who had remained very close for decades to come and also become embroiled in this scandal. However, her possessive father didn't want to know about any of her male friends. Boyfriends were banned from Headington Hall, and she was sternly warned never to appear in the papers on the arm of any other man except from Robert himself. The relationship between Ghislaine and her father has been described as unusually close by one of Robert Maxwell's former lovers, and his influence on her was profound. His influence may well have lasted to the present day. Robert Maxwell, or Captain Bob as he liked to be called, was a deeply complex character in life, and an even more mysterious one in death. Dozens of books have been written about him with headline-grabbing titles such as The Assassination of Robert Maxwell or Robert Maxwell, Super Spy. He's been the subject of thousands of articles and dozens of documentaries too. So it was surprising how many of these journalists and authors refused to talk to me in the making of this series. It's rare that an author wouldn't want to discuss his book. But for so many authors of so many books and articles, to all choose to remain silent was something I've never encountered before. It seems no one wants to be associated with Epstein, however loose and far back the connection goes. It's important to this story to understand how Maxwell Sr. was so deeply embedded with arms dealers, world leaders and intelligence organisations, and how he profited from his role as a money launderer and a thief on a spectacular scale. Robert Maxwell was born Jan Hock in 1923, one of seven children to an Orthodox Jewish family in eastern Czechoslovakia. He claimed he was so poor that he didn't own a pair of shoes until he was seven years old. During World War II, as the Nazis rolled into his hometown, he fled to France to fight for the Czechoslovakian army in exile, whilst his family who remained were exterminated in Auschwitz. In all, he lost his parents, four siblings, and most of his extended family to the Nazi death camps. When in France, he changed his name to Ivan de Maurier after the famous cigarette brand and was later evacuated to Britain as France also fell to Nazi occupation. In 1945, he married his lifelong partner Elizabeth, who was studying at the Sorbonne at the time. He joined the British Army and went on to fight across France before winning the military cross for heroism on the Dutch-German border for storming a German machine gun nest. The decoration was pinned to his chest by Field Marshal Montgomery. But it was during his time with the British Army, signs of his savage, brutal and violent personality were becoming clear. He vowed to avenge his murdered family, and according to many sources on several occasions, he took delight in executing surrendering Germans. As you can well imagine, he wrote to his wife, I'm not taking any prisoners, and whatever home my men occupy, before I leave, I order it to be destroyed. Another letter home told of how he mopped up German resistance fighters, ordering his platoon to moor to the village where they were hiding, while another told of how he shot a German mayor. I sent one of the Germans to fetch the mayor of the town. In half an hour's time, he turned up, and I told him that he had to go tell the Germans to surrender and hang the white flag, otherwise the town will be destroyed. One hour later, he came back saying that the soldiers will surrender, and the white flag was put up. So we marched off. But as soon as we marched off, a German tank opened fire on us. Luckily, he missed so I shot the mayor and withdrew. 
Captain Ian Robert Maxwell was officially working in the press section for the Foreign Office in Berlin. However, according to both Maxwell biographers and historians, he almost certainly would have been working either directly with British intelligence or working on projects for them. Post-war Berlin was split into four zones controlled by the British, French, Americans and Soviets, and the city was a hotbed for spies, double agents and those looking to profit from their connections. Almost anyone working for the Foreign Office overseas in those days would have been directly or indirectly working with the intelligence community. And it was thought that Maxwell was not working exclusively for the British. His linguistic and cultural heritage, combined with the access his British military titles afforded him, would have made him a very desirable asset for all of the various intelligence organisations that had descended on Berlin in the late 1940s. A declassified US intelligence report from 1953 showed that the Americans assumed Maxwell was in regular contacts with the Soviets in East Germany. Maxwell traded information regarding US and Allied military, political and economic organizations in Germany, US and Allied intelligence operations directed against the Soviet bloc, and US contacts with underground movements in the USSR, the report said. In documents released in 2003, it showed that the Information Research Department a now-defunct covert unit of the British Foreign Office said that Maxwell was almost certainly financed by Russia. Digby Ackland of the IRD wrote in a 1959 report, Captain Maxwell's questionable activities have been brought to the notice of the Foreign Office on several occasions over the past 10 years. But unlike today, post-war Germany was a hotbed of espionage as global powers jockeyed for influence. Everyone was spying on everyone else. So Maxwell's role as a spy in those days wouldn't have been that unusual. Entrepreneurial characters like Maxwell were often used as go-betweens as various nations either wanted to receive information or seed misinformation, and were happy to spend money or share some snippets of information for that privilege. However, what was less common was what happened when Maxwell returned to the UK. He received investment to create his first publishing company, Pergamon Press, and that investment came from MI6. Well, Maxwell would be recruiting people, uh, interrogating people, what their scientific views were or weren't, or, and basically, I think, in those days, probably trying to get odd scientists, as it were, on our side. It was obvious that he'd been doing odd things for MI6, probably in Germany already, and he suggested that um, we should subsidise him in the, in the form of... Uh, helping him buy his business. That was former MI6 agent Desmond Bristow speaking to the BBC in 1996. Having a character like Robert Maxwell on the books was very useful for British intelligence. The Brits used Pergamon Press, a publisher of mostly dull scientific tomes, to recruit Soviet scientists to the West, or at the very least, to understand their level of scientific capabilities. This was the early 50s, when nuclear arms proliferation was the focus of both the Soviets and the Allies. Plus... The KGB and the Soviet propaganda department didn't mind a prestigious Western publisher showcasing the excellence of Soviet scientists. Uh, Maxwell was a special person. He was uh, uh, received in our highest, highest spheres. That was former KGB chief Leonard Shabashin. Maxwell was still playing both sides.
As Pergamon Press grew, so did Maxwell's wealth and influence. In 1964, he was elected a Member of Parliament for the Labour Party, a seat that he held until 1970. The KGB were pleased they had an asset in the heart of the government and used him to put questions to the House or to try to persuade Parliament to lean in favour of the Soviets. The BBC reported in 1993 that Maxwell was used by the KGB to persuade Parliament in their favour, including arguing that the UK should tolerate the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. Maxwell had been working with the KGB since the end of the Second World War, but his connection with the Eastern Bloc and Soviet satellite states saw him cross paths with other leaders, spies and dictators, putting him in a unique position that was the envy of many Western business leaders, but also drew questions about his ethical code. This is Peter Conradi, now the European editor of the Sunday Times, who went to work for Maxwell in 1990. He would publish kind of fawning biographies of East European leaders. So I think I think Todor Zhivkov, who was the Bulgarian dictator, I think there is a Maxwell was involved in a, um, a fawning biography of him, which of course you know no one would really have bought, but which would have served a purpose because it would have been it would have been there to tell sorts of people let's say Zhivkov's aides would have shown him uh, this is how you're seen in the uh, in in the west general secretary his cozying up to the bulgarian communist government sat very uncomfortably with many in the uk but turned out to be very lucrative for him for more than a year now, the prosecuting authorities here in the Bulgarian capital, Sofia, have been conducting a criminal investigation into the financial affairs of the old communist regime. They're seeking to apportion blame for what's universally known as the economic catastrophe, the crippling $11 billion foreign debt. It's a huge and complex inquiry into a tangled web of international financial deals. They want to know where the money went. One name they keep on coming across is that of Robert Maxwell. This is an extract from a BBC Newsnight programme from 1991. According to Asen Michkovsky, document 63 of Bulgaria's Foreign Currency Committee shows that on April the 24th, 1988, a group of ministers decided in secret to send money abroad by investing up to $200 million in shares through Britain. The middleman for the deal was Robert Maxwell. He was to get double the commission the Bulgarians normally paid. The reason, according to the document, was payment for the risk he was taking. The company through which the money was to be invested was the Maxwell-controlled London and Bishopsgate International Investment Management, PLC. Maxwell also co-founded a bank in Bulgaria that was used by the country's main arms dealer. And intriguingly, he signed large cheques for projects that never got underway. It's very strange, uh, uh, and uh, we have information that some of the checks uh, amounted uh, of a million pounds. And, uh, of course, uh, we are very suspicious, and uh, we think that uh, this, is a, this is a way of laundering money from UK or from the United States and so on. So you're saying that Maxwell signed checks? Yes. For deals that were never done? Yes. What do you believe happened to that money? Uh, I have no strict evidence because this is the bank secrecy, uh, uh, of course, as in other countries. But it seems to me that this money uh, uh, 
came in Bulgaria and then uh, was uh, transferred to another country or to another banking account. And that's the laundering of money. As the Bulgarian communists fell in 1989, many of the leaders went missing, never to be seen again, as did the country's billions in cash reserves. A mysterious fire at the offices of the Communist Party headquarters in the days before the country fell sadly destroyed any documents that might have shed light on those occurrences. Czech, Brit, Soviet. Regardless of nationality, Maxwell was first and foremost a proud Jewish man. He invested heavily in Israel, publishing, pharmaceuticals, tech firms, and was close personal friends of many of the country's leaders. And when frequent accusations of him being an Israeli spy arose, he met them with furious denials. According to one Middle East expert I spoke to, a surprising number of successful and wealthy people of Jewish heritage will go out of their way to help support their homeland, whether that's through charitable donations or the building of a school, or perhaps tipping off the odd intelligence agent. In 1986, an Israeli whistleblower named Mordecai Venunu came to London, where he told the Sunday Times about Israel's secret nuclear weapons programme. The nuclear scientist was the victim of a honey trap that saw him seduced, taken to Rome, and then injected with a paralysing drug before being bundled into a white van and shipped back to Israel in an old boat. Fanunu then spent 18 years in solitary confinement in a jail in Israel and came out a broken man. The Sunday Times, who published the story, had been incredibly careful with Fanunu, keeping him in a safe house, monitoring his security throughout the process. However, unbeknownst to them, Fanunu, prior to speaking to the Sunday Times, had tried to sell the story to the Daily Mirror, the newspaper owned by Robert Maxwell. According to those familiar with the case, who have spoken to but aren't willing to speak on the record, they suggest that it was very likely that Maxwell would have picked up the phone directly to Israel's then-Prime Minister, Shimon Peres, or at least to a contact at the embassy in London, when he heard that Benunu was going to leak Israeli state secrets. A former Mossad agent, Ali Ben Manash, went on the record in 1991, also claiming that it was Maxwell who tipped off the Israeli embassy in London after his paper were offered the story. It's not uncommon for publishers and very senior business leaders to deal directly with presidents, prime ministers and royalty. They hold a huge amount of influence, and as Rupert Murdoch has proven many times, they can sway public opinion. Maxwell was almost certainly an agent, or a double or even triple agent at the start of his career in post-war Europe. But as he became successful, rich, influential, it's very unlikely he was working directly for or with one government intelligence agency. More likely, he used his network and used his influence and finances to make deals with governments that worked in his favour. Did he tip off Mossad? Did he help out his old buddy Gorbachev and the KGB? Did he happily take millions in commission from Bulgarian dictators? Almost certainly. Let's say there were a small number of businessmen around in in those in the in the Cold War era, I think, who were able to straddle the Iron Curtain. These kind of vanity projects um, that overlapped with real kind of commercial interests and which naturally would have 
made him, Maxwell, of interest to intelligence services, be they in, in, in Western Europe, be they in the Soviet bloc, or indeed in, in Israel. And, and, you know, he, he maintained very, very close links with Israel through his life. Um, he's, he's buried there. Um, and so it wasn't just an East-West thing. It was an East-West and Israel thing, which sort of added this extra dimension of, of intrigue to the whole thing. I mean, who was he ultimately working for? Was it British intelligence? Was it Mossad? Was it the KGB? Was it Czech intelligence? Was it Bulgarian intelligence? I mean, you know, who knows, really? Behind the scenes, he may well have been acting as a broker, a middleman and a money launderer. But on the surface, he was building his publishing empire in the UK. Maxwell missed out on buying British newspaper The News of the World in 1969 to Rupert Murdoch, in part because of the British establishment's reluctance for such a prominent paper to be controlled by a foreigner with connections to the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc. So instead, it was sold to Rupert Murdoch, another foreigner, but one perhaps a little less terrifying to the establishment. After missing out on the news of the world, his publishing company, Pergamon Press, was also coming under scrutiny by shareholders, who claimed he was falsely stating the company's profitability. Share trading was suspended, and he was eventually booted out of the company he founded by the board. But by 1974, he'd bought the struggling company back with borrowed money, and in 1981 launched Maxwell Communication Corporation. In 1984, his goal of owning a British newspaper was finally achieved when he bought the Mirror Group, a catalogue of six papers, and he could now really challenge his rival Murdoch. The 80s would see Maxwell buying up dozens of media and tech companies and even half of MTV Europe. But his spending spree wasn't limited to businesses. He also acquired a $20 million yacht, two Gulfstream jets, and a football club, and then in 1990 launched a newspaper called The European. Peter Conradi again. They promised me quite a good salary, and I thought, right, what else can I get? Ah, an office car. I clearly need a, I clearly need a, a good office car. And I thought, well, obviously, I need a big, rugged, expensive four by four. So I, I, I ran the numbers past them, and I said, it's going to be about. £25,000, which I thought was quite a lot of money in 1990. And they said, oh, only? So then I thought, right, these people have certainly got money. I will go away. And I got the slightly larger model with a slightly bigger engine. And uh, at that stage, I hadn't actually met Robert Maxwell. I'd been hired at a distance. It It was quite curious. And stories came back to me, sort of filtered back to me from London about the slightly odd goings-on at the paper. Um, I mean, Maxwell was a very, very hands-on kind of editor. This was very much sort of his project. He took a very, very kind of personal interest in it. I mean, I've subsequently worked for the Sunday Times uh, for many years, which is ultimately owned by Rupert Murdoch. So Murdoch, one would see very, very occasionally in the office. Maxwell, completely different. This was Maxwell's baby. He was there the whole time. And I went to his office in in Hoburn. I think he was, if I remember right, he was in the Daily Mirror building there. And his office was right at the the top of the building. And I went there and um, 
went to the very top of the building. And I mean, his, apparently his helicopter was, was on the roof. He had a, heli, a helipad on the roof from which he could sort of fly off whenever he needed to. And so I went there and uh, had a perfectly pleasant conversation with him. And at the end of it, he, he asked me how much I earned. And I told him how much I earned. And he said, hmm, that doesn't sound very much. Why don't you have another 5,000? So I thought that was, that was great because another 5,000 in those days was a lot of money. Um, and it was only months and months later um, that I found that I'd never been paid the, the, the pay rise. Um, you know, he would sort of, no one had actually taken any note of it whatsoever. It was, it was sort of, it was, it was typical of him. Maxwell would leverage one company to buy another. He borrowed from one to pay debtors elsewhere, and by 1991, he owned around 350 companies. The Ponzi scheme is probably a good, you know, a good description for it. I mean, the European never made any money, as far as I can tell. It never came vaguely near turning a profit. But, you know, he put, he put a lot of money into it, um, which was great for those of us that worked there. But it was, you know, it was a huge vanity project that you, you can't imagine if someone in a, a normally, someone had a normally run, properly run public company would face much, much more scrutiny from, um, you know, from shareholders and or from advisors, accountants or whatever. And I think he, he, he you know, he, had, he was such a domineering character who surrounded himself, as far as I could see, with, with yes men that he would do something on a whim and everyone around him would say, oh, yes, Captain Bob, good, good idea, Captain Bob. And, you know, he could, he could get away with it. But he had overreached and the cracks were starting to show. He was forced to sell his beloved Pergamon Press and 49% of the Mirror Group to pay off his growing debt. Maxwell wouldn't survive to see his business empire come crashing down. In early November 1991, he was on his boat, the Lady Ghislaine, off the coast of Tenerife, recuperating from a cold. At 4.45am on the 5th of November, Maxwell contacted the bridge to complain about the temperature and tell them to turn the air conditioning up. These would be his last words. His naked body was found by a Spanish fisherman 12 hours later, floating 15 miles from his boat. Due to the suddenness of his death and the timing so close to the collapse of his media empire, there were many conspiracy theories as to how he died and who might have killed him and the reasons why. Firstly, he was murdered, maybe by Mossad, who he'd threatened to expose for some crime, or maybe a former dictator that he'd double-crossed. Maybe a business partner was unhappy that his laundered money had fallen down the back of the metaphorical washing machine. The second theory is that he committed suicide, leaping off his boat to a watery grave, aware that his huge debts were about to cause his empire to come crashing down, and afraid of the shame, imminent bankruptcy and jail time, he decided suicide would be a better option. At least this way, he wouldn't have to face the music, and perhaps he found a way to ensure some of that money found its way to his beloved daughter. The third theory is that it was an accident. Maybe this 68-year-old man who weighed 140 kilograms and liked smoking cigars had a heart attack while pissing off the back of a boat at 5am. Or maybe he simply just slipped. 
verdict of death by accidental drowning was given, and the coroner's report only found some scratches on his arm where he may have tried to hold on to the barrier. Three pathologists who performed post-mortem examinations disagreed as to whether he had a heart attack, drowned, or drowned after having a heart attack. Either way, there wasn't, as some have tried to suggest, needle marks behind his ear or a great big holes in his body from an assassin's bullet. Although there's still a lot of speculation and conspiracy about his death, I'm pretty confident he wasn't whacked by some scuba-diving, Mossad-hired ninja assassin. Ken Lennox, then the Mirror's senior photographer, was one of the first on the scene after he died. He saw Maxwell's naked, dead body, and he was convinced it was an accident. He used to get up at night and pee over the stern of the ship. Everybody knew this, Lennox said. And he weighed about 22 stone at the time. The railings were wire, so I think he lost his balance because he was very top-heavy. I don't think he committed suicide. Roy Greenslade, an editor at the Mirror, however, has written a book on Maxwell and is a suicide theorist. I believe Maxwell threw himself off. He was a man who could not face the ignominy of jail, of being shown to be a liar and a thief, and he very much knew that was coming, he wrote. However, one person does believe it was murder. He did not commit suicide that was just not consistent with his character. I think he was murdered. This was his daughter, Ghislaine, speaking in 1997. After his death, it was revealed that Maxwell had stolen £440 million from the Mirror Group's pension fund. Thousands of staff had lost their life savings because Maxwell had been borrowing more and more to fund his lifestyle, feed his ego and grow his empire. He was borrowing from one company to pay debts on another. Effectively, he created a massive Ponzi scheme, taking more and more out of the companies he owned to invest in companies he wanted to own. He was a thief and a crook. Immediately after his death, Ghislaine flew to Tenerife. She was really, really upset. You could tell this was Daddy's girl. She was inconsolable. She could hardly speak. When she saw her mother, her knees just buckled. She was devastated, Lennox, the photographer, said. Then, shortly after landing, Ghislaine coolly walked into her father's office, wearing a red tartan suit and shredded all incriminating documents on board, according to Mirror journalist John Jackson, who witnessed the scene. Days later, Ghislaine fled London to New York to escape the media spotlight, and within just two months was seen on the arm of a handsome, wealthy Jewish broker, Jeffrey Epstein. In the next episode of Ghislaine... Welcome to the three voicemail service. You have two new voice messages. New voice messages. Finally, people are starting to talk. Hi, um, this is Eric Ben Manasseh calling you. If you could, please call me back. And what they're going to say is going to blow this whole thing wide open. This show was written and narrated by myself, Tom Pattinson. Additional production and sound design was by Danny Knowles, and Peter McCormack was the executive producer. I'd also like to thank Peter Conradi for his time, and the other people I spoke to in the research of this show who'd like to remain anonymous. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, the best and safest place to buy and sell Bitcoin. Available at kraken.com, or you can download the app from the Apple or Google App Stores. I'm Tom Pattinson. Head over to defiance.news, where you can download previous shows and watch our films.